Um, it really is a joy for me to be back here. Uh, I guess when uh, I was sitting where you're sitting, uh, oh, I think I've broken that, uh, where I was sitting where you're sitting uh, in 2002, I never expected uh, to be standing here. Uh, and I do feel like I should almost give you an apology. There's been this wonderful list down through the years of all these eminent international, internationally renowned speakers and authors standing here. Uh, and that you're stuck with with me for this weekend. But I'll do my best uh, to guide you through uh, this brilliant little letter uh, of Philippians that I've fallen in love with again uh, as I've prepared it. Uh, Apology number two uh, really is is that I I guess uh, as I prepared this, I feel I'm cheating you this weekend because uh, if I was to teach through this letter, I would do it in at least twice as many talks as uh, I've the opportunity to do over this weekend. So inevitably, we're sort of skimming the surface of this letter. I'm not going to get the chance to, to drill down deep uh, into every part as I would like. But hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm around all weekends. I would love uh, if, you, if, you, if I spark any questions that you want to, to explore a little further, please, uh, I'm, I'm happy to chat uh, and to do that. So look, if you've closed your Bible, could you open it again uh, to Philippians 1? And it'll be really helpful to have it open uh, for the next few minutes as we'll be f- referring fairly constantly uh, to that. But if you'll indulge me, I'm going to pray again uh, and ask for God's help. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is a speaking God, personal. Um, Father, we thank you that you spoke and this world was made in all its beauty and complexity in its vast scale. Father, on top of that, you then spoke words of, of promise and you speak to us words of the gospel. And so we thank you now that uh, as we come and we open this book, Uh, which looks like any other book, uh, but we know that it's radically different because in this book it's not so much words on a page, but by your Spirit it's breath on a a page where uh, you breathe out life and truth to us. And so we pray, please, that you would help me as I speak. Uh, Help us all as we listen. It's been a busy week, no doubt, for us all. Please give us minds that are strengthened to understand for these next few minutes. But on top of that, we pray that you would give us hearts that are soft and responsive to your voice as you speak to us. And we pray that you would strengthen our wills, that we might go out with renewed resolve to obey you and live a life wholeheartedly devoted to you that would please you in every way. And so we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, as many of you know... um, Uh, which seems almost unimaginable now, but for centuries, uh, people used to believe that the world was completely flat. Uh, Again, it seems a ridiculous thought to us right now. But uh, it wasn't until uh, 1530 when Nicholas Copernicus uh, published his shocking and controversial work, uh, arguing that it wasn't that the earth stood still and it was flat, um, and that all the, the, the sun and the stars revolved around it. No, uh, actually, that it was the sun that was at the very center, the epicenter of our solar system, uh, and that we revolve around it. Now, again, people laughed at him. They thought that was ridiculous. No one had ever thought that way before. Uh, but actually, over the years, he was proved to be exactly right. Uh, and the result of his discovery 
is what we now call the Copernican Revolution. All the, all the drawings, all the, the, the thinking about our solar system, all had to be scrapped, all had to be changed. It was a complete revolution needed to happen in everyone's perspective and in everyone's thinking. What I want to suggest to you uh, is that this letter is about the gospel revolution that needs to happen in all our lives. The gospel revolution that needs to happen in all our lives. When we come to see that the good news about Jesus, that he is the Son of God who came to be fully God and fully man among us, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death on the cross, was raised again, ascended and exalted. When we come to realize the truth of that, when that comes into that, 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 change that becomes the center of our lives and reshapes everything everything changes um, when you come to understand the truth of that you see at all at one time we all were working under the foolish notion that we're at the center of our little universe that my life is all about me it's all about uh, my passions my priorities my plans um, and again, we see that. I suppose that, that looks a little different for different people. Uh, for some, it will be my career being at the very center of, of your life. Uh, if I can make it in my career, then uh, I will find that security, then I'll find that sense of identity that I, that I crave. For others, it'll be that relationship. If I can have, find that special someone, uh, who will complete me, right? If I can find that someone, then, then, I'll, then I'll be satisfied. Or if I can find that success, or if I can ha- know that everyone thinks well of me, then, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. But do you see in all of those things, you, the me, the, me, the I, is at the very center of life, and it's about my passions, my priorities, uh, and uh, my plans. But again, what Paul is saying in this letter, a bit like what Nicholas Copernicus was saying, is that we are not at the center. The sun, S-O-N, is at the center of reality. And we would be wise and right to reorient our lives completely around him. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, before we dive into to this chapter, we've had a little bit of background uh, um, by reading Acts 16. Uh, this uh, Philippi is a city in northeastern Greece. It was the first European stop for Paul when he moved from Asia to Europe. This is the first European church. Uh, Paul went there. He preached the gospel, as you heard. Uh, and there were those who believed the truth of the message, were wonderfully converted, and a little church was born there. Uh, but uh, Paul then was kicked out of town by persecution. We'll come back to this idea uh, as we read through the letter. Paul was kicked out of town, chased out of town. Uh, but they kept good contact with Paul. Uh, they continued to support him in his missionary journeys, kept in good contact with him. Uh, and by this stage, uh, Paul, uh, it's about AD 60. It's about 10 years after the events that Ben just read uh, to us in Acts 16. Uh, Paul has continued to, to preach and teach publicly about the good news of Jesus. He's done so in Rome, uh, and, or he's in Rome. He has done so. He's in Rome and has now ended up in prison 
because of his teaching. Uh, This little church hear of Paul's plight. Uh, They hear that he's in prison. uh, And so what they decide to do is to send him a gift, a gift of money, and a messenger to carry that gift, a man called Epaphroditus, who we'll come to tomorrow, uh, to come uh, give that gift to Paul, to support him in his need, uh, both financially, uh, practically. Uh, and we know from even verse, verse 19 here that they were committed to praying for Paul. And so here was a church that were uh, loved uh, and uh, were devoted to Paul. And in many ways, what this letter is, is, is a thank you letter. It was put into the hand of Epaphroditus when then he went back to, uh, to Philippi, saying thank you for the wonderful gift and thoughtfulness that they've shown to him. But of course, as conversations with Epaphroditus unfolded, Paul heard of some issues in the church in Philippi. And what he does in this letter is that he shows that if they can to fully understand the gospel, if they, allow, if they fully apply the gospel, it will revolutionize their lives and it will address some of the issues that these, this little church is struggling with. Look, we just have time to race through uh, chapter one in this session. And what I want to suggest uh, is that we see three areas in this chapter where the gospel revolutionizes. It revolutionizes, uh, verses 1 to 11, it revolutionizes our relationships. Verses uh, 12 to 18, it revolutionizes our values and priorities. Uh, And then verses 18b, 19, 2, 23, we'll see that it revolutionizes what we hope for, what we hope for. So let me just try to guide you through each one of those big sections. Again, we don't have time to, to, look at every, to look at every verse. But first, the gospel revolutionizes uh, our relationships. Again, I want you to imagine Paul in prison. Uh, he's stuck in a cell in chains. It's dank. It's dark. It's completely miserable. Picture him in your mind's eye sitting in that dark prison cell. And I want you to imagine that he's smiling. He's smiling. He's smiling not because he's just been given a release date. He's smiling not because he's been told he's won the lottery. No, he's smiling, uh, verse 3 and 4, because he's thinking about them. He's smiling because he's thinking uh, about them. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, with joy. And what we're going to find as we read through this letter is that it's filled with joy, a joy. And joy, we'll see, we'll see tomorrow. Joy isn't just happiness, which is normally just connected to our circumstances. No, it's deeper than that. Joy is something that, that, is, that cannot be touched by your circumstances. We'll come back to that tomorrow. And the reason that Paul is smiling as he thinks about them, the reason he is happy uh, and filled with joy at the thought of them, verse 5, is because of their partnership in the gospel. Because of their partnership uh, in the gospel. Now, this is a word that's, that's more commonly translated in the New Testament, fellowship, 
fellowship. Some of your versions there might have the word fellowship in it. Um, Now, fellowship is a word often misunderstood in Christian circles. I think it's fair to say. So the word fellowship, if you are a Christian, you will be thinking, I imagine, if you've grown up in Christian circles, you'll be thinking fellowship is that time after the formal service when Christians kind of hang out together, have some really weak tea and even weaker dilute orange juice and a soggy kind of custard cream uh, and they chat about work and the weather, right? That's pretty much it. That's fellowship, isn't it? You know, you have a cup of tea or a dilute orange juice with a non-Christian, that's friendship, but if you do it with a Christian, that's, that's fellowship, right? But I want you to see that that's, that's a million miles away from what fellowship is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, actually more in line with the New Testament might be something like, again, this reveals the geeky side in me, the fellowship of the ring. Any Tolkien fans? Anyone know the Lord of the Rings? One or two, maybe brave enough to admit it at the back. But the fellowship of the ring and part of Tolkien's big epic tale uh, is this idea of a ragtag bunch of strangers thrown together And they've got this common goal, this common task, this vital quest that they've got got to, to go on together. And their only hope for success is when they all work together. That's actually much closer to what uh, the New Testament means by the word fellowship. So partnership is actually a pretty good translation here. It captures the idea that we all need to work together for this common goal, for this common uh, for this common purpose. Uh, if, to use another anal- analogy, if you were, uh, maybe you play on the sports team, whether it's football or hockey or netball or what, whatever it is, uh, I think you were all familiar with that idea that you, you, you work together, work hard together for this common goal and common purpose. And what is the common goal and common purpose Christians have? Well, it's to get the, to work together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, to get the good news of Jesus out, to get the good news of Jesus out to a lost uh, and needy world. And what we see uh, in this little section, uh, when Christians work side by side like this together, work hard together, three things, there's three features of partnership, gospel partnership, three features that you should expect to experience. If you too get involved Working alongside Christians, getting the gospel out. Three things. First, we see assurance. We see assurance. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this or assured of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As Paul looks and recalls and savors their constant commitment as he looks at their courage in uh, continuing to defend the gospel, as he looks at their um, commitment in the midst of trials and persecutions, as we'll see tomorrow, Paul is wonderfully reassured as he looks at them because what they are doing is not natural. That's not natural to behave that way, to commit, to courageously speak out, to endure under trial. 
That's supernatural, actually. That is a sure sign that God is really working and active uh, among them. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As Paul looks at them, he is confident that God is working and will continue to work because our God, the sovereign God, is the ultimate completer finisher. What he starts, he finishes. When he starts a work in the life of a Christian, he will bring them on to maturity and he will bring them home. And so if you want to experience the joy, the assurance of seeing God active and at work, then here's what you do. You commit yourself to working shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with other believers in the great goal, the great quest of getting the gospel out. Do you want that? We we all long, I think, for assurance seeing God at work somewhere, well, here's how you can have it. Here's the first way you can have it. But then secondly, Paul goes on to talk about how he feels because not only is uh, partnership marked by assurance, it's also marked by affection, affection. It is right for me to feel this way about you, about all of you, since I have you in my heart. God can testify how I long for all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's really strong language here. Paul is saying, God is my witness, how I long for you, how I feel this warm affection for you. It's really passionate, loving language. Um, Again, we're meant to see here that partnership in the gospel is not just the same as a business partnership. Uh, There's no hint here whatsoever of some cold professionalism uh, between Paul uh, and these other believers. No, there's this warm affection that has grown up and flourished uh, between between both of them. Now, I don't know if you've ever had... uh, Well, I guess what I want to say is that this affection really began with not just... Christians are different from just members, co-members of a gym or a library. Members, co-members of a gym and a library are just using the common facilities. In fact, ideally, it's better if no one else is there while you're using the facilities, isn't that right? Uh, And sometimes that is the attitude some people have to church. I go to church and uh, it's this event I attend and I like to sit down and stuff happens at the front and it's performed for me and that's great and then I go home. You will never, if you do not commit to working alongside your brothers and sisters in the task of getting the gospel out, you will never have this affection for one another. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Uh, Perhaps you've been on a missions team uh, summer camp, uh, kids work, um, or a ministry team in your church, and you've been thrown together with people, to be totally honest, you would never have naturally gravitated to for your own, for, for your own friendship group. You may be have very little in common with them in terms of your age or interests or whatever, but actually, I don't know if you've had this experience, but working alongside, shoulder to shoulder, 
serving and sacrificing week in, week out, over time, a real, genuine, authentic affection begins to grow in you for them. And Paul is saying, that's, that's normal. That's normal. Partnership in the gospel often leads to this warm affection. And the reason, it is, the reason this affection grows is because we are not just common members of one organization, but we share a common experience. We have together received the mercy of God. We've been given his forgiveness. We have, we can, we have one spirit prompting, motivating us. We, we pray to one father. We have one destiny, part of one church. You see, the reason we have affection for each other is because we really are family. We really are family. What should we expect uh, as we work together in partnership with the gospel? We should expect to be assured, gain assurance as we see God working in the lives of other people. We should expect to gain affection uh, and see it and feel it grow towards those we're working side by side with. And then thirdly, if you genuinely feel that affection, your concern for your brothers and sisters will grow and you will end up, thirdly, asking God for their growth. Asking God for their growth. Assurance, affection, then asking God for their growth. And yes, you'll be asking God and concerned for a whole bunch of things in their lives as you find out. You'll be con- You'll be praying for them as they do exams, move jobs. Uh, you'll be praying for them to find that special someone or uh, when illness strikes. You'll be praying for all of those things, absolutely, of course. But a constant theme in your prayer should be if the gospel has really taken root in your heart, if it really is reshaping your life, is that you will be praying for their growth in their knowledge of God and in their love of God. That's what you'll be praying for partners in the gospel. Do you see how it works? Uh, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best uh, and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul prays that they would grow in love for Jesus by getting to know Jesus better. Now, that is not the way it normally works, is it? If you get to know me really, really well, doesn't necessarily mean you'll love me more. Isn't that right? Because as you get to know me really, really well, you'll, it'll be really obvious what my faults and feelings and foibles are. And they may be profoundly ugly to you and irritating to you. But that's not the way it works for the Lord Jesus. As you get to know him better, as you see his compassion, as you see his courage, as you see his obedience to his Father, as you see his self-sacrificial love, you grow in love for him. It's the way it works. As we get to know him better, we love him more. And as we love him more, we're able to make decisions that please him more. So, you know, imagine you go out on a blind date. You don't know anything about this person. uh, And you have planned 
say it's, the, say it's one of the guys here, and you're, you're in charge of the date for whatever reason, you plan a slasher movie in the cinema followed by a curry. Your first conversation, uh, what, what sort of movies do you like? Romantic comedies and don't like hot food, so maybe Italian. Do you see how all your decisions clashed with the preferences and uh, desires of this person? Because you didn't know them well. But as you get to know them well, then you're able to make decisions that you know will please them. And so it is with growing in your maturity as a Christian. As you get to know Jesus better, you know his character, you know his priorities, you know what he is passionate about, and so therefore you will be able to make better decisions about how to use your time and your talent and your treasure. You will be able to make better decisions about what you should say to someone and what you should not say to someone. You get the idea? Paul prays for these Christians. His passion for them is not that they would be comfortable. It's not that they'd be healthy, although I'm sure he doesn't not want those things for them. But his big priority, his big passion, is that they get to know Jesus better, love him more, and as a result, make wise decisions in their lives. I want you to see that Paul's relationships have been completely revolutionized because of the gospel. So often, if we're honest, we are friends with people. We spend time with people because what we get from them. If they're particularly cool, we get to sort of enjoy the reflected glow of their popularity. So we we get something from them. They make us feel good or they... um, They give us status. Notice Paul doesn't relate to people like that anymore. His passion is the gospel. And as he he takes himself out of the center, it's not about me and getting what I want or what I need or me having fun. It's about the gospel. And ironically, ironically, that has brought him closer with his partners as he sees God work in their lives, as he feels an incredible affection and love for them, uh, and as he commits himself to praying for them, Paul is now other outward-focused and other-centered. The gospel has revolutionized his relationships. We have to move on. Secondly, verses 12 to 18, the gospel revolutionizes our values Now, it's pretty clear what uh, situation Paul's in. He's in chains. Uh, Paul repeats that in verse 13, verse 14, verse 17. Uh, What we know, piecing together bits of information, we suspect Paul has been accused from Acts and so on. Paul has been accused by the Jewish authorities that he's an enemy of the state, that he's dangerous. Uh, And so he has been... uh, He's been arrested and he's effectively on remand awaiting trial. It's not clear how uh, it will turn out for Paul. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, It's not clear how things will turn out for Paul. Um, But as the the Christians in Philippi hear uh, the situation that Paul's in, Paul in prison, their temptation, their first reaction, understandably, might have been to think, probably was to think, disaster. Paul, an apostle, his job is 
traveling around, preaching, getting the gospel out, planting churches. He's been very successful, but now he's banged up in prison. He's absolutely limited. This is a disaster, right? That would have been their temptation to think. But Paul very quickly wants to say, no, that's, that's actually not the case. Verse 12, now, what, uh, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, serve to advance the gospel. More people are hearing about Jesus because I'm in prison. So how does that work? Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace, palace guard, uh, and to everyone else that I'm in chains uh, for Christ. Um, At the very least, Paul in prison, there's a guard on the door. But it's also possible there's actually a a guard chained to Paul. Either way, I'm sure conversation went like this. Uh, And so what what are you in for? Um, Well, I'm Paul. uh, I'm in here for for telling people about Jesus. And who's who's he then? Well, he's he's got the son. He came to become one of us. He lived the perfect life, died uh, a death, taking the penalty we deserved on a Roman cross, and was raised again, showing that his, his, the price he paid was sufficient for all our sins, uh, and he has ascended onto heaven, and he's going to come again to judge uh, the living and the dead. Oh, right? Wow. Uh, next guard, next shift, same conversation, next guard, next shift, same conversation, and on and on and on, so that in the barracks at coffee time, have you guarded that guy Paul yet? You hear what he's been talking about? What do you, what do you, what do you make of that? And the news gets out about Jesus in a group, a more unlikely group of rough, tough soldiers where the gospel previously had no access to, now wonderfully, the whole palace guard, the heart of the Roman establishment, the good news of Jesus has has got out. And Paul rejoices. But I want you to see, this is rubbish for Paul. This is rubbish for Paul. Paul stuck in a prison cell. Dank, dark, Rats, rancid food. And yet, what does Paul say? This is good. This is good. Rubbish for me, but great for the gospel. Rubbish for me, but great for the gospel. But then on top of that, there's a second way in which the gospel is getting out because Paul is imprisoned. Uh, and and, And that is through other Christians who are emboldened, given courage and confidence to speak in, in a brand new way uh, about the Lord Jesus. Uh, there's two groups. The first group are those who love Paul, those who love Paul. Uh, and they, I guess, are seeing that, look, here is Paul, so convinced by the truth and the beauty of the gospel that he is Not just willing, but happy to go to prison for it. They're almost given greater courage, greater inspiration by it. Well, if he thought it was worth going to prison for, then I should at least share it with my neighbor. I should at least share the good news about Jesus with my work colleague. 
if Paul thinks it's worth going to prison for. And so, Christians who love Paul are given courage and confidence to share the gospel. But there's a second group then, those who are jealous of Paul. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, verse 15, uh, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing, uh, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on, but you can imagine something. We can piece together something of the picture, can't we? Perhaps there's a group of Christians who who don't like Paul very much. They think uh, he's been stealing the limelight. You know, I went to hear him preach, and, you know, he wasn't all that. Uh, You know, know, maybe with Paul out out of the limelight now, maybe people could see what I could do. Uh, Perhaps even to secure a bit more influence, to secure their position while Paul is is indisposed in prison. Perhaps they're bad-mouthing Paul. Well, you know, Paul, he must have done something wrong to end up in prison there. You know, you you, you come along to my church and, you know, I'll see you right. You can imagine. Selfish ambition. Now, Paul in no way thinks these are false teachers. He would call them out if he did. He doesn't think they're false teachers. They're preaching the, the, the right gospel, but they're preaching it with bad motives, selfish motives. And so Paul's reputation is, has been damaged. Rubbish for Paul. We all hate people bad-mouthing us, especially in public. It's rubbish for Paul, but yet great for the gospel. And Paul says... I'm okay with that. In fact, I rejoice that that's happening. Do you see how this is all about what you value the most? If Paul valued his comfort and his reputation the most, he would be sitting in prison drowning in self-pity, whining. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Because he values the gospel supremely. He's willing to let go of his comfort, willing to happily let go of his reputation so that the gospel can get out. And so Paul sits in prison, and as he thinks about the gospel going out, he smiles. He smiles. Do you see how the gospel, when it comes into the center of your life, it revolutionizes your values? Back in 1967, uh, a young girl uh, was diving into uh, a shallow lake and she banged her head, she broke her neck and was rendered uh, paraplegic. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tada, who's now a famous writer, uh, in her 60s now has been diagnosed with breast cancer. And when that story got out, even among the Christian media, There was almost a sense of, can anything more happen to this poor woman? And so Christianity Today interviewed her, uh, and she wrote this. It is amazing how many opportunities I have been given to see people, especially medical staff, hungry and thirsty for Christ. Something special 
that is, a, is accompanying this diagnosis. I am just so amazed by people asking me, how can you approach this breast cancer with such confidence? And how is it that God allows it? And I am being given the chance to answer that God allows this to happen to me for the advancement of the gospel and the giving of the kingdom to more people. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? There is a lady whose values are completely turned on their head. What does it matter if I have breast cancer? As long as the gospel's going out. She hates her illness. Don't get me wrong. She hates her illness. It's horrible. It's painful. It's terrible. She hates that. But what an effect. What an effect it's having. She rejoices that the gospel is going out. And so the question is, What do you value the most? What do you value the most? Do you value your own comfort or your own reputation more than the gospel? And I think we all do, don't we, at times? We all do. And this is why a letter like Philippians is so helpful, a corrective, to show us that the most important thing in the universe is that people get to hear the good news about Jesus, that he is alive, risen from the dead, and because of his atoning death on the cross, offers forgiveness, offers membership in God's family, and offers a fantastic future that will last forever with God. That is the most important message anyone can ever hear. And until you believe that, your reputation, or your, you will value your comfort and your reputation more. And so what I pray for you guys and for me as, as we look at this letter is that we, our hearts are warmed again by the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Well, on to our last, our last point as the cups are rattling uh, and you're thinking about supper. Uh, the gospel revolutionizes our relationships, the gospel revolutionizes our values, and lastly, the gospel revolutionizes our hopes, verses 18b to 23. Again, Paul's in prison, in uh, a dank prison cell, and he knows there's only two ways out of that cell. Two ways. One way is that he will go to trial and he will be acquitted. He'll be released, free man. Or he will go to trial, he will be found guilty, and he'll be executed. Those are the only two ways out of that cell. And in verse 19, it, when you read it quickly, it sounds like Paul is confident that he's going to get released. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Okay, Paul's confident of option A. Confident, I'll be released from prison. And that is until you read verse 20. Uh, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Doesn't sound quite so confident in verse 20, does he? And the question is, what, what, does he, what does he mean by deliverance? And, and as I've kind of studied this, I'm, I'm persuaded that actually he's not talking, when he talks about deliverance in verse 19, he's not talking about release from prison and the threat of death. Instead, as you read verse 20 clearly, he is, 
persuaded, or sorry, he is, is longing for deliverance from temptation. Deliverance from temptation to let Jesus down, to deny him, uh, to um, crumple uh, under the pressure uh, of imprisonment uh, and the threat of death hanging bef- uh, above him. Um, but Paul is confident that with the prayers of his partners in the gospel in Philippi, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he will be delivered from that temptation and that he will confidently speak up for Jesus no matter what comes his way. Paul is longing for... uh, Well, what Paul is saying is that actually I'm in a win-win situation. (laughs) Win-win. If option A and I'm released... When, when I go on to continue to serve the Lord Jesus, to speak the good news to those who haven't heard, to build up the Christians who have, brilliant. When, verse 22, or verse 23, if I die, if I die, uh, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. If I die, when? Because I get to be with Jesus. If I, if I live, win. If I die, win. Paul's hopes have been completely revolutionized uh, because of the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. When the Bible talks about death, it's always a bad thing. It's, it's described as an enemy. Death is, is a horrible thing. Uh, and in many ways, an unnatural thing. It's not the way God designed the world to be. It rips our relationships apart. Um, it causes such pain and grief and sadness. Death is always a bad thing. But nevertheless, that is the door through which we go home. It's the door through which we go home and go to be with Jesus. And in that sense, it's better by far. Uh, now, when I was at the theological college, um, and I think it was my final year, I got the opportunity to spend, with, with a bunch of other students, I got the opportunity to spend some time with a guy called Mark Ashton, Ashton, Mark Ashton who was the, the rector in St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge for 23 years. Um, and Mark shared a little bit of his experience. Uh, he went in for surgery uh, to, to have a gallbladder removed. Uh, when the surgeon went in, they discovered cancer, and it was at a stage where it was there was no surgical solution left anymore. Uh, it was too late for radiotherapy, and effectively they just closed him up and broke the bad news. We reckon you have about six months left to live. And it was actually in that window of six months that I got to meet Mark for the first time, uh, and he shared a little bit about his experience, how he was processing and thinking about that diagnosis and how to live the, a Christian life with, with that after that news had broken. And he was very honest. He talked about his, uh, the sadness that he felt for his family. He was very honest. He talked about the, how he was feeling scared about the process of death and the pain that was, he was going to have to face and go through. But then I wrote down in my notes, because I never wanted to forget it, he said... You're probably feeling pity for me right now as I speak. But you should be feeling envy. 
because I'm going to see Jesus before you. Do you see, there is a man whose hopes are revolutionized because of the gospel. Totally changed. His outlook on what awaits lies before him is totally different. Now, I guess I want, imagine you did this little exercise. Imagine you did this little exercise of verse 21. And you're asked to fill in the blanks. Imagine you didn't know the Bible, right? You didn't know the Bible at all. This is a quite famous verse, but imagine you didn't know the Bible. And you're given uh, verse 21 with some blanks in it. To live is, to die is. How might you naturally want to fill that in? Wouldn't you fill it in? To live is fun, and to die is disaster. Is that not how we all would want to naturally fill that sentence in? To live is fun, to die is disaster. But look how Paul fills it in. To live is Christ. To live in the service of him, in pleasing him, and to die. It'll be awful, but it's ultimately gain. It's ultimately gain. The gospel, when we truly see its truth and beauty, and that sinks in properly, that sinks in properly, it revolutionizes our relationships, it revolutionizes our values, it revolutionizes our hopes. I don't know if you ever heard this about someone maybe comes to you and they say, you go to church, I was thinking I might like... God in my life. I'd like a bit of religion in my life. Can I go along to church with you? I certainly have had some folks who said something along those lines. But notice what they're thinking at that point. They are thinking that Christianity or religion is a bit like adding a conservatory to your house. quite like my house. It's nice. But I would would like just this little extra bit. That would be good. What Paul is saying here is, if you're to become a Christian, if you're to understand the gospel and let it sink in, it's not like adding a conservatory to your life, to your house. What it is doing is saying, I need to knock down your house and build a brand new foundation and then build everything new. Everything is different. Everything is reshaped. Everything now revolves around the gospel at the center, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And the great irony, I think, as we read through this letter is that our initial reaction might be to think, if if I'm removing me from the center and my pleasures and my plans and my priorities, then I'm going to lose out. I'm going to lose out. But actually... As you read through this letter this weekend, I want you just to note, maybe even circle in your Bible, either the noun joy or the verb rejoice. Same word in the original. The noun verb, the word rejoice. Because actually, when we put the gospel at the center of our lives, only then do we discover life as it's meant to be lived. Only then do we discover real purpose, real meaning, real hope, relationships that are authentic and meaningful and important, values that matter, 
hope that is certain. The gospel changes everything. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we want to thank you for the truth uh, of what Jesus has done for us. Father, we pray this weekend that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes to see it's the, the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we might be changed. Father, our longing this weekend is not that our minds would be filled with more Bible trivia, but that we would know you more so that we love you more so that we might serve you with greater joy and passion. So please continue to speak to us. Please continue to change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.